0: All right, beloved. Let's open our Bibles to the Book of Jude this morning. We're going to step away from the Book of Hebrews this Sunday to the Book of Jude. Very short letter here for a message that I'm entitled, as you see in your sermon notes, kept by God. Uh, how many of you have a copy or need a copy? I'm sorry of the sermon notes. Anybody need a copy? All right. the epistle of Jude. And we're going to read verses for the second time. Let's just read verses one and two, and then we'll begin. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word I wanted to come to this precious little letter this morning known as the epistle of Jude for a couple reasons One is because from time to time in a church where we rightly exalt the sovereign throne rights of God in his providence of doing for man and with man as he pleases, according to his purposes. From some time to time, we have to come and allow scripture to speak to the balance of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or you could say human responsibility If we're not careful at times, we can exalt God's sovereignty so much to where we can fall in a ditch of air and think, well, if God is just going to do everything, then what's the need for me to do anything? And I don't know of you parents, as you have tried to exalt within the minds of your children, uh, the truth of God's rightful uh, place over creation and his decrees and his... um, purposes to do what he will and providence of if, if the children have ever asked you well then you know mom and dad if that's the case then why do we even need to pray what's the point of prayer if God's just going to do what he's going to do well in the epistle of Jude God's absolute sovereignty over all things what he does for his glory and according to his purposes in harmony with what he calls us to do as a man are beautifully combined And I wanted us to come and to look at some very simple elements, of many of the precious biblical truths that we hold as Reformed Christians, and examine them afresh, be blessed by them anew, and know that we are standing on solid ground of understanding the sovereignty of God and the complete harmony it has with human responsibility. As you see that in your notes, we're going to learn today about these two issues will answer such questions as who are God's people that are supposed to demonstrate responsibility in their lives what role does God play in their lives how are they kept by God what is it that they are to be kept in why is it necessary or what role do we play in being kept by God And what is God's role in that? Well, all these questions and more, I hope, that we can explore today in this little letter of Jude. And we're going to begin here in verses 1 and 2. And as you see in your handout, we will also look at verses 20 and 21 for a second consideration, which deals more with our responsibility in the preserving work of God in our lives as His people And then in verses 24 and 25, regarding God's ability over all things, even our failures, to keep us in his covenant. Let's look here just a moment and consider something about this author in verse 1 that identifies himself as Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. This inspired writer is Jude, the brother of James. This is James, the disciple. We know from Scripture that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Thus, Jude here is writing this, is also the half-brother of Jesus. His older brother, Jesus, in his humanity, would have grown up in the same household. They would have, no doubt, been called upon to do the same chores around their father's carpentry business. And why do we say he's the half-brother? Well, because while they share the same mother, Jude and James... They were of an earthly father, weren't they? Of Joseph, unlike the Christ uh, through the immaculate conception that was given to their uh, uh, common mother, Mary. And so this is who's writing this. And I want us to, just as a brief introduction of knowing who wrote it, look at the fact that he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, his older brother. Uh, we, hear, we see here a, a disposition of heart that is very humble. He is Guys, think about this morning. He grew up with Jesus. You know, they would have played together. Uh, I don't want to speculate too much on their relationship here. But I'm, what I'm saying, there was much familiarity, we could say. We could safely say that. They lived together. But yet, through the power of the Spirit, as we're going to see in a moment, what qualifies him as one of uh, God's people is that he has a very humble heart, a heart of a servant. He sees his older brother, Jesus, not just as his brother, but now he sees him as his savior, Jesus the Christ. Briefly, just seeing who wrote this. What's the the context here that makes this so precious? Well, this leads us to the thought that James, something happened to James uh, in conversion that made him have a humble heart, all right? And so this causes us to ask the question, Well, who are God's people? It's those who are servants. It is those who have this humility of seeing that Jesus is the Christ and they belong to Him, right? And this comes forth for us in this, I call a triple description in verse number 1 of identifying and describing the servants of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 1. This triple description of God's people that we're going to use to kind of unpack this morning. To them, he's writing... That are, he says, sanctified by God the Father, they are preserved, and where I'm getting largely the heading of our sermon today, they are kept, they are kept in Jesus Christ, and they are called, or as the ESV translates it very well, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's an appropriate translation too, and that's how I'm going to unpack it in that order called and sanctified and kept let's consider first of all what does Jude mean for those who are called of God young ones does Jude mean here that Jesus is picking up the telephone of course not does he mean that he's writing a letter and sending a message to call uh, him via you know a messenger or or an errand runner no he's not what's he mean here by being called of God let's consider that together the Christian who the text here says God will keep, that He will preserve, in Jesus Christ is someone described as being called. Now the old Baptist catechism, as you see in your sermon notes, in question number 35, describes this calling as an effectual calling. What do we mean by effectual? Something that actually has power. Something that's ineffectual has no power, right? Look at your sermon notes. What is effectual calling? Because that's what Jude's talking about here. He's talking about Christians are those who have been called, effectually, powerfully called. Well, the, the Old Baptist described it this way. Effectual calling, this calling, young ones, that Jude is talking about here. It is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sins and our misery enlightening or you could say opening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and notice this language, renewing our wills as if our wills needed renewing as if they were old. There was something wrong with them. Well, there was, wasn't there? There is something wrong with them. They're sinful. Well, He does persuade, it goes on to say, and enable us To embrace Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. So, this calling that Jude is talking about is a spiritual calling. It's a spiritual work, isn't it? This is who is going to be kept eventually, who has received this calling. Now, this is recorded in many places in the scriptures. It's good that our Baptist forefathers recognized this biblical truth of this effectual calling. But notice how the Bible describes this and evidences it. You have it in your notes there. Isaiah 41, nine is a good place. We've been reading through Isaiah. You may have remembered this verse. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, talking to His people, Israel, the remnant, and I called thee from the chief men. You, you lowly people, I called you. O oh, sons of Jacob, In verse 8, he says, who he chose. It wasn't that you woke up one day and thought, you know, looking around the scene here, a lot of these ancient pagan gods just really aren't cutting the mustard. Let's, you know, come to the one true living God. No, he's reminding them through the prophet Isaiah in the time of their calamity, it was me who called you out of darkness. I sent the effectual calling to you to recognize me as the one true and living God of all heaven and earth. This is the effectual call. I love the reference we have here in our notes from John 5.25 from the New Testament. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear they shall live. He's not talking about the resurrection there. He's talking about those who are spiritually dead in the context of the Gospel of John as he's being challenged by the Pharisees. Who are you preaching this way? Who are you going around saying that you can raise men from the dead and that you can spiritually awaken people? Oh, he says, the voice of the Son of God, the call of the Son of God will enable people to live who were dead. Well, here's something that I want to place Before us in our consideration, especially understanding that there is an audience here today who have maybe not all shared um, the same sort of, how do I want to say it? I want to be careful with this. The same sort of amplification of the call. You see me struggling with words here. I want to be careful because the essence of the call is the same that's captured in the text. The call, uh, Brother Gris, to you and to me who lived a world many years out in the world and, and sin and decadence, you know, at the very bottom of the barrel. It was as if it was a light on the road of Damascus to us. It was a, it was, it was a screaming, shouting call to us. Uh, mounting up, stacking up as if it were the years upon years of sin that we had committed, Right? But what about Naomi? What about one of the children in the Hamaker family, perhaps? Who nonetheless, you children know, but your own conscience will prick you and convince you that you have sinned, unless the Bible be a liar. Because the Apostles Paul says, all men, including you even, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, yes, indeed, perhaps your sins haven't been mounted up as me and Grizz. And sorry, Grizz, you're just in my viewpoint here. (laughs) Praise be to God, right? Uh, But of course, yours hasn't mounted up. But nonetheless, as the brother of Jesus, James teaches us in his epistle, even one violation of the law makes you guilty of all the wicked sins that even me and Grizz would have committed. And so the essence of the call is just the same. You are, just as the one who's been on the world for years, just as much in need in, 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 and also unable to perceive your own need for the Savior. And so it takes the voice of the Son of God to call upon you. But don't ever fall into the error of thinking, oh, my conversion or my call didn't look as dramatic as the other brothers in the church, and so therefore perhaps I haven't been called. I want to give you a verse in the Bible to help you to see no matter the application as I'm saying of the call, the call is verified if you are granted by the voice of the Son of God the ability to recognize, to accept, and to bow and to believe the truths that are being proclaimed in the Gospel. Because without that call, you and your natural state, the way you were born, you cannot come to that place by yourself. Look at your sermon notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man, no matter the age, the natural man, the way you were born, with the proclivity, the inclination to sin, and to like sin, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is why even in Sister Heather, a Christian home, where a mother and a father are doing all they can, knowing that everything depends on God, but they're acting as if though everything depends on them to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Out of two kids, one can be a complete Esau, but one will be a blessed Jacob. Why? Because it's not within them, even being saturated with the gospel being saturated with Christian parents who love them. No, not perfect, but are showering them with love and and walking with them and pointing them to Savior, But still they could see the gospel. These things are foolish. These things are foolish. Why? Because they haven't received the call of God. And so no matter who is here today in this church, if you are being beckoned by the call of God, if, you're, if your mind is being challenged to consider your place before God, the truths and the claims of the gospel that your parents hold to or that your, church, uh, your fellow church friends hold to, you're being called by God. You're being challenged by God. The voice of God could very well be calling you unto Himself. And so, in a very similar way, Those who have been called by God, we know today are still called. He doesn't do it any other way. That's why I was very careful how I described that calling. The essence is the same, no matter where we're at in life. The spirit works through the mind. I want to be very careful to uh, make sure we understand that. The spirit of God works through the mind of a person to transform their will. Conversion doesn't happen in ignorance. Meaning that no matter what church someone's in, when the gospel's being preached in its most basic fundamental form, Christ crucified, buried and risen again for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, beloved, that's the gospel. Now, there's a lot more behind that gospel. That's the most simplest form of the gospel. But when... The Holy Spirit comes through with the gospel to someone's mind, they recognize by the ability of God's Spirit upon them that they are actually sinners in need of a Savior. It, in other words, it's not an existential human experience of just emotionalism void of an understanding of the gospel. And that is why I'll just challenge us as Baptists here today when we have young ones in the church that come to faith and say, I want to be a Christian. Praise be to God. It seems as though God is calling you. It seems as though He's drawing you. Now let's spend some time to make sure you understand that why your will apparently has been transformed and now is coming to want to humble itself as a servant before God. Amen? As to where some in the Pado Baptist community are far too frivolous with this idea. That it is an understanding, a grasping of one's great need of the Savior that has to be there in order to understand the call. It's not just emotionalism is the point I'm trying to make. The person called, as I've already kind of alluded to, has a sense of the convicting power of the Spirit over their sin, over their self-centeredness, because ultimately that's what sin is. It's just wanting to fulfill our own self-centered needs and pleasures and desires, despite what God's law says. It convicts us, this call of our sins and our self-centeredness, which subsequently causes our hearts and our souls to ache and to become burdened. We can't sleep. We're not easy with this uh, uh, sense of conviction. And then in that broken and repentant state, by the power of God's spirit, as the catechism says, it, God enlightens our mind in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, who I'm going to propose in the text will be kept, you've been called. You have sensed this, what we're calling effectual calling. You've sensed it. Yes, the implication may be different, but you've sensed it, you've experienced it. You have actually felt and sensed the drawing, the beautiful, attractive drawing power of the cross where Jesus bled and died for you. It's a real personal experience for you. You know it to be true. The voice of God has branded that precious, glorious reality, that, that adoring reality of what Jesus did upon the cross. And he enabled you to respond to what Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, such a calling No doubt's going to disrupt the usual routine of our lives. There will be, or I should say, there should be a noticeable difference in the life of a routine person who's received this calling. Philippians 1 6, uh, you have that in your sermon notes. It's a wonderful reminder that this noticeable difference of one who's received this call may take some time. That's what Philippians 1 6 is teaching but at the same time it teaches that it's a progressive moving forward and a further conformity to the image of God but notice in Philippians 1:6 it will take time Christian you don't receive this calling be humbled as a servant and automatically be eradicated of everything that plagued you and still latches onto you coming into your Christian walk. If so, then Philippians 1.6 is not true. It all begins though at the calling of God as mentioned by Jude here. Well, let's now consider having looked at uh, those who are, are God's people. They're called Consider that the subject or the person who has been called is also, the text says, sanctified. I've given you in your notes there that word in the original Greek, what it means. Look at what it means. Because sometimes in, in the modern uh, church, we get a little confused perhaps of what sanctified means. Does it, does it mean I'm like, you know, purer than my fellow church members? Does it mean that I'm a little more holy um, then, then my spouse. Well, look here. It simply means, at least in this usage here, to separate something from profane things and dedicated to God. And so, in some particular sense, we begin to see here that there is a love of God which is distinctly manifested in the calling of sinners unto Himself. And then also a love of God manifested as taking them through that calling and setting them apart for his use. That's that's what's being uh, manifested here. The love of God for some people to be drawn to him and then to be changed and to be sanctified and set apart and dedicated for his use. Let's consider this just for a moment. Now, one may ask the question, doesn't God love everyone? What do you mean? There are some men he loves and he sanctifies or sets them apart for his use. And then they will be later on kept forever by God, as the text says. Well, let's consider this idea, this question that often comes up. God loves everyone. Let's consider it in a twofold way. In the first sense, we can rightly say that God, as mankind's ultimate, sovereign ruler and creator, He grants what I like to describe as a kingly benevolence to all mankind. I believe we're justified in saying that, church, because look at your scripture notes. Matthew 5.45 teaches this much. As the creator, he is benevolent to all mankind. The text says, does it not? And it truly means when you study it out, that he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the who? The just and the unjust. There's two categories in that text. There are the unjust, the wicked men, all mankind. And then there's the just, those who have been called and separated and sanctified for his purposes. And so I believe that we're completely on safe ground to conclude that God does demonstrate what can be described as general benevolence for some of my Calvinistic friends. Or, I don't have a problem using this term, he does demonstrate common grace to all men, both the just and the unjust. I'm not afraid of using that term when we look at it through that lens and we're careful to differentiate the second sense in which he loves all. The second sense, which is a very important sense, is that this common grace, or what we're calling general benevolence, Toward all mankind, it is not in any way void of God's displeasure and his wrath against the unjust sins. In other words, although God does extend to them common grace by allowing them to enjoy all the blessings of his creation, he does not ever once become less angry toward the violations and the transgressions of his holy law. Against the unjust. But for the purposes. As the old Puritans used to say. Ungodly kings. Even ungodly men. Who paved the roads. That you drove on here today. Who come and fix your air conditioner. Who give you food upon your plate. God uses all these things. The Puritans used to say. To be window dressings for his elect church. Right. But that doesn't mean. That God's going to wink. At. At them on judgment day, that somehow he's going to, you know, minimize the judgment they deserve. No, he's allowing them in this general benevolence of him as a creator to what? Carry forward all of his redemptive plans for the good of those who love him. That's what's going on, beloved. But in contrast to that, here in Jude, the the concept that's presented to us is a different type of of sanctifying, setting apart a different type of love that I believe we could rightly call a special grace or a salvific grace of God by where He sanctifies, He sets apart certain people to be recipients of His special adoption, to be brought into His family and enjoy the provisions that He will only give to His people. This whole matter of general belovedness to all mankind and special grace only to some men We must admit as a church, it can be troubling in the postmodern society in which we live, right? I mean, God should love all people. He should save all people. How can you really believe that he only selects some and gives special grace to some? But beloved, however disturbing this truth may be, we as the church, as Bereans, who want to be sought uh, or found rather as following only truth, we must allow the scriptures to guide us in properly understanding the will of God regarding this salvific grace and the general benevolence and how it's different for the rest of society. Well, firstly, the scriptures teach us that when, it become, that when someone becomes a Christian, it is because God chose, he set apart, he loved them or her unconditionally before the beginning of time. Or as Jude says here, he sanctified them. He calls and set them apart. And as our old Baptist confession says, it wasn't anything at all known or seen in them. That's why. It was a special setting apart, motivated by nothing else but the love and the grace of God alone, period. Now we could spend much time going down this rabbit trail, but where do we get the warrant, children, of believing that nothing motivated God in and us of why he would send a call if we have received that call and taken us, transformed us, changed our wills, the disposition of our wills from hating him, being indifferent to him, to love him and want to be a servant and strive to follow him. Where do we get that from? Is that just a hobby horse or something invented out of scripture to make us feel more cozy as postmodern man? No, beloved. We go to the word of God. Look at 2 Timothy 1.9. I've just given you a couple here. 2 Timothy 1.9, this idea of God setting us apart out of all of mankind, only according to his pure love and grace. The Bible says, who, subject as God, saved us and called us with a holy calling. Notice this, children, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us, granted to us in Christ Jesus. When? From all eternity. This calling, this rescuing, this setting apart of someone, Brother AJ, it's not him responding to an ambulance situation. It was from all eternity that he unconditionally, that's what we mean when we say unconditionally. There was nothing foreseen in us, no works that we committed. And this is what makes his mercy and the grace which our catechism said is offered to us in the gospel of Christ, beloved, so powerful and so precious. When someone hears the true gospel preached, they understand the amount and the magnitude of the love of God. They see the true representation of the cross that you truly deserve hell for your sins. But despite your own sins, I'm going to die for your sins. And I'm here to rescue you from the, the depravity of your sins and give you eternal life. Ephesians 2.5 also echoes this truth of God's unconditional love, unconditionally setting apart some men in all of humanity for his special purposes and love. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive. This goes back to John 5.25, hearing the voice of the Son of God. He has quickened us together with Christ. Let's read it together. By grace, ye are saved. Grace, their children, means grace. Totally ill-deserving sinners receiving pardon from a righteous God. That's grace. Grace is never to be confused with God's effectual love and pardon and mercy with our good works or something that we can can contribute to the grace. Never. Never. It's by grace you're saved. Lastly, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace ye have saved, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. They're just amplifying that faith is an instrument that's used, but it's given to us by God. There are some that They get bound up sometimes and they even say that we're saved by faith. They say, oh, that sounds like you're making faith a work. Well, no, we're saying what Paul says here in Ephesians 2.8. God uses faith by changing our mind and our will to be able to respond in faith that he gives us. And that is the experiential aspect of our conversion, the faith. It works, as Dr. Peter Master used to say in seminary, in the palace of your mind. That's where it works. That's where faith is created. Well, secondly, along that means in complete, and in complete harmony with God's special grace, Scripture tells us that when people are lost, it's because of their own sins that they are responsible for. Read Romans 3.23. I make that point of how this gospel this truth of God's special love upon some who He calls and He sanctifies is you know, really offensive to the postmodern world. Beloved, I say that because no one's going to be able to say on the judgment day, well, I'm only here being condemned and punished only because You didn't call Me and You didn't sanctify Me. Romans 3.23 says no. You're going to be judged and you're going to be punished Because of the sins that you have committed. You wanted to commit them. And you did commit them. God was not obliged to rescue any of us. Was He? No, John talks about it. We love darkness. We didn't want to hear the light. Isaiah, the reference is Isaiah. We could have spent more time there. They were loving their idol worship we've been reading through Isaiah. They They didn't want to change. But God sent the prophet He sent light, He sent His message, and He rescued them. Many mischaracterize our position of the biblical gospel, of those who were only called and sanctified by God's unconditional love, affection, and mercy as being one somehow or another that's unfair to the one that will be condemned on the day of judgment. No, no, no. They clearly do not understand man's responsibility for paying the debt for his own sins that he has committed. The only difference between one group of people we could say that we'd be considering and the other is God's sovereign love and grace, capital letters alone. That's the only difference. We're not Christians. We're not sanctified as Jude's saying here is set apart because we had more common sense than our unbelieving neighbor. I used to love how R.C. Sproul would talk about this. Um... Idea that you know why do you think you're a Christian? Or it's, it's it's rather prideful if you think about it that you contribute in some way, shape, or matter to your salvation. What are you you you're just a little better than your neighbor. No, that's not why we're Christians. We just don't have we don't have more common sense that our extended family members or co- co-workers Your eyes were only open to the truth, are we say, and able to believe by the special grace, the special setting apart of God, by being sanctified in His gospel. As our beloved Jude, under direct divine inspiration here of the Holy Scriptures demonstrates next, those who the Father has called, who He has sanctified, they will be, as the authorized version says, preserved or kept by God. And this is where the providential care of God comes into full focus. The doctrine of God's preservation of His people becomes necessary for us to consider. What does He mean here, church, by being kept? Well, this idea of keeping or preserving it's a prominent theme throughout this letter of Jude, And the Spirit of God is communicated to these early Christians and to us that those who have been truly reconciled to God, those who have truly answered the call that I just, as I have described it, who truly have been sanctified, God will not ever let that person go. That's what's being communicated here. Now note that I was very careful to say the one who is truly reconciled to God shall be kept. Because some may say, well, I know someone who was once a Christian, but they fell away and they died in their, his or her sins. And so, therefore, this truth that you're espousing or that Jude is putting forth here can't be truthful or we don't understand it completely or entirely. Well, the doctrine that's being taught here by Jude is not the preserving of all professing Christians. That's not what he's talking about. It's the ones who have been called and sanctified. Or even those who appear to you and me to be Christians. He's not saying that they will all be kept. Because we're easily deceived. It is the doctrine or the teaching of the keeping, the preserving of the true saints of God. What are they to be preserved in? You see in your notes. Well, they're to be preserved, the text tells us, in Jesus Christ. And what this means is a state or position of grace. Whereby a person is delivered from the wrath of God. And brought under his fatherly love. Also being kept in Jesus Christ. Not only is this understanding that I've been set free from the condemnation and the eternal judgment of God. And he's now my father. But it's the experience of having the spirit of God. And all of his fruits within our hearts. It is the preservation in the faith. A preservation in Jesus Christ. A preservation in continued repentance of sin that will indeed arise in this Christian's life. It's a continuing preserving in the love of Christ. The hope at the supper that yes, he has forgiven me and he will continue to forgive me. He will continue to help me to battle things and overcome things. It's a continuation in all of these things that are wrapped up in the gospel promises and the fruits of being adopted into the family of God. It's the joy of the gospel that you once were shown that, wait a minute, I deserve punishment in hell. Oh, but the love of the cross, the love of God in the cross forgives me, accepts me, offers help to me. We read in Matthew today, chapter 11, my burden's heavy, I'm weary laden, it gives me rest. That gospel doesn't go away, beloved. God keeps you in that gospel every single Sunday as Pastor Dennis Clark expounded yesterday in teaching on the Lord's Supper. Oh, let us be careful every time we approach the supper, amen, that it doesn't become ritualistic. We do it every Sunday, not to dull our senses, beloved. We do it every Sunday because, Sister Heather, I need the gospel every Sunday. I need to be reminded that I am kept, Brother Scott, in the gospel of Christ by the sovereign keeping power of God and I need His forgiveness on a weekly basis. Well, that's what we're kept in. This is what Jude is saying. If he's called you and sanctified you, you will be kept in a continued looking to the cross of Christ in Jesus Christ. But how long will this last? I mean, will God ever, Sarah, get tired of you? Will God ever, Sister Jen, just get exasperated by your failures and your shortcomings? The text won't tell us. The answer is forever. And if you look to John 10:29, it's very clear that he will never, ever dispose of any of us who have been called and sanctified. The words of Jesus, you have them in your sermon notes from John 10:29. He taught that my Father, which gave them me, we've already considered that, he is greater than all, and there is no man that is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You hear that security, that preserving, that keeping. Jesus teaches us here that all those who the Father has given unto them, who He has called, who has sanctified and set apart, and now we're learning, will be kept in Jesus Christ, will never perish. He will keep His people. Consider with me one biblical example. Do you remember the account of the Apostle Peter? On the night of Jesus' betrayal? If there's ever someone who just ruined a chance to demonstrate he was one of Jesus' followers. It was Peter on that night. I mean, Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me before it even happened. I don't know about you, but if I received a warning like that, I would have been like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe next month, maybe next week, you know. So it happened within moments. It actually happened. How could you be that forgetful? And Peter, what did he do? He certainly did not have a big S on his chest, did he? No, he failed miserably. He failed miserably. But Jesus prayed for him. Jesus interceded for him. Jesus told him, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you, Peter. I'm praying for you. And in a similar function, we know from Romans 8.34, that he is, we're going to get into it a lot next week, is our high priest interceding for us at this very moment. How long will he preserve us? How long will he keep us? Until the very end. Now what we read in Isaiah this morning, doesn't it come kind of full circle? When we say the very end, we mean the very, very end, even in our hoary headed time or no hair time. Jesus is interceding for us to keep us. Well, I am known about you, but I sure am glad that we see in the text today that God is the author of it all and that God is going to do it all and that Jesus is going to keep me all entirety to the very end because now I can just hit the cruise control, beloved. I can just check out. I can just depend on all of you to do all the work. You can depend on me to do all the work. And you know what? We don't have nothing to worry about, Grizz. No, 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 no. That's the wrong understanding of the balance of the sovereignty of God in Him calling you, sanctifying you, saving you, Him promising to you that He will keep you, and also now what you and I must do. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. Beloved, He's coming now to the end of the letter and He's going to give them some instructions after exalting the sovereignty of God, the ability of God, the promises of God, and He says, Beloved, Build up yourselves on your most holy faith. How? Praying in the Holy Ghost. And notice verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Up until now, we've discussed much about God's role. But what must the Christian be doing in this life? Where... We are ultimately guaranteed to be preserved and kept by our faithful covenant God. Well, in the overarching context of this letter to Jude, he's telling the Christians to contend for the faith that was once and delivered all unto the saints. That's the overarching context. To to battle against false teachers that he says has crept in unawares in verse 4. And as you see in your notes... He now proceeds to teach that there's three things necessary when continuing for the faith that was once and, and for all delivered in the saints. The first thing is to build up themselves. So he's in the context of the letter of Jude saying, listen, there's false teachers coming here. You guys better be prepared. Be on your guard. Be aware. You've got responsibilities. You have to defend the truth of the faith. You've got to carry it on for the next generation. And now he comes to the end of the letter and he's going to give them these three things that are necessary in order to be able to defend the faith. Now, you think about today. Where we're at as the church. And why there's such a mess. And then ask yourself, out of these three things, which ones are lacking or not being consistently sought after in the church? All right, let's look. First, build up yourselves. What does this mean? It means build up yourselves upon sound doctrine. Young ones, that's what he means when he says holy faith. Pure faith. Set apart faith. We take responsibility for our own spiritual lives by the grace of God and the renewing our minds. And we build up these minds. We build up ourselves upon the holy faith in truth, in truth. So in other words, we're getting in the exercise, Jim, beloved. We're we're, we're coming and we want to spiritually get exercised. Uh, we, We want to grow. We want to take nutrition. We want to take vitamins of biblical truth. We're listening to things. We're reading things. Above all, we're studying our Bibles. We're spending time in the Word. We're building ourselves up. So it's absolutely necessary to contend for the truth, preserve and conserve truth for future generations by each one of us building ourselves up Upon the holy faith. Not just the pastor. Not just mom and dad. Not just my husband. Not just my wife. No, all of us have a responsibility, he's calling us, to build up ourselves in the faith. And when we don't do that, guess what happens? Men creep in unawares. Start peddling lies, misinterpretations of scripture. And we all just sit comfortably in the pews, don't we? And go right along with it. Until... Until, because of God's promises, the winds of reformation start blowing. Until things start getting too far and God's people say, wait a minute. This isn't in God's word. This doesn't seem right. And then God will what? He will bring revival. I was contending with the brethren this weekend as we'll come into our business meeting. There was much talk about revival and I noticed that there was one historian amongst us He's very knowledgeable about the uh, early uh, 19th century revivals, which many of them now are rust belts. There's no life in the church there anymore. Uh, The works of Charles Finney, other things like that. And I said, brother, I said, be careful that you don't make God's moving and revival all about these big movements of emotionalism. Be careful. Because I see a revival going on right now. There was 20, almost 20 guys. I didn't get the exact count. I think only said there was like 20-something guys in Podunk, Nightstown, Indiana there. And they weren't there, guys, just because of the pizza, even though we had good pizza. They were there to build themselves up in the truth of the holy faith. And then these men go back to Wisconsin. Then these men go out to Terre Haute, Indiana. Then these men go over to here and go over to here. And they set in their churches, And they're bringing about reformation. They're bringing about and they're continuing for the faith. Respectfully, rightfully. This is what we admonish at those fellowships. You love your local church. You go there to be an instrument of change the right way. Isn't that glorious? Beloved, that's revival. That's revival. Building up a desire to be built up in the holy faith. Well, secondly, what's important to contend for the Holy faith is praying in the Holy ghost. And we're going to be talking about this in the business meeting, understanding of course, that our struggle is not with flesh and blood but principalities, powers and witnesses in high places. We must be a praying people. Jude says in order to contend for the truth, you by God's grace, pray in the Holy spirit, meaning simply this, the spirit in harmony with the word makes known to you that you have been adopted into God's family that you belong to God and therefore in that spirit of adoption as a son or a daughter, that comfort, that liberty that comes with being a son or daughter, that freedom, you approach your heavenly father, yes, with reverence. Oh, but with a disposition of knowing that he hears you. That's what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. It does not mean to pray in the Holy Spirit some formal mechanical prayer that has to have all the exact theological words out of a confession or out of a book. Nor does it mean praying in the Spirit. We must say this, should we not, mean that you can speak in some sort of angelic language or unknown tongues. Very simply, we know we're correct in saying that because Jude here is telling all the church to pray in the Spirit. And there's... A certain class of Christians that would say, "Well, what this means is that you're given direct communication by God, and you're able to pray in the spirit in angelic languages." But but that's only. But they also would say only a few people can do that, and some of them even confess, as we learned at our breakfast meeting Saturday morning at the fellowship. We had interaction with a Pentecostal man at the restaurant. He said even. Very few even do it nowadays. So we winked and said, well, thankfully that's true. (laughs) Okay, moving on here, coming to our point here. Thirdly necessary, keep yourselves in the love of God. Let's look at this verse 21. This is really the theme we're working with here. Relating a little more closely now with our topic of being preserved, Jews says that one way to contend for the truth is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, As I often will think at times and have to get back on track. Wait a minute. Just wait a minute. We were told being kept by God as his people. We were instructed in verse one that he's going to do this. So why are we now being told to keep ourselves? Well, this question reflects our flawed human logic, which thinks along this line, if God's going to do it, then I don't need to do anything. But biblical logic is much different, beloved, from our sinful, darkened reasoning. What the Holy Spirit is communicating in this letter by the hand of Jude is that since God has done and is still doing something within us, then we as his people should want to be doing something too. We should want to be keeping ourselves in the love of God. Look at your notes at Philippians 2. Verses 12 and 13. This is a classic way to illustrate this point of us keeping ourselves. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I heard something at the fellowship this morning or this weekend about a, a, one of the most, I, I mean, we don't put men on pedestals, but God greatly used this preacher, especially in the Reformed Baptist community. And I, I just, I mean, I have seen this man in his older years and he is just the same as he was in his younger, years. not one deviation, not one compromise, complete humility in the pulpit. He is a lion, bold, powerful, but when you meet him out in the pulpit, he's this very gentle, meek, lowly, humble man. In the context of keeping yourselves in the love of God, I heard from a very close friend of him this weekend. He said, you know, many people don't know this, but before his first wife passed away, when he would be given a Time magazine, which he was fond of reading, he always advocated his ministers, we need to be kept up on the times are going on so we can relate to the people in the pews and what's going on he would give that magazine to his wife and he would say, dear, I want you to go through the magazine and I want you to cut out anything in this magazine that may be a stumbling block for me as a man. Now, this person that was telling me this said that there was another minister that used to always, who knew about that, said, well, it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's not the magazine. It's the matter of your heart. Uh, Speaking of the minister. But what he failed to see, the one that was saying that, is that this dear brother took seriously the reality that he knows it's the matter of the heart. and he wanted to keep care, he wanted to have careful attention of what was coming into his heart, right? He wasn't at all saying, "That forces me or that makes me do that." No, he was careful of keeping himself, of watching himself of working out in fear and trembling what God has blessed him with, which is a reality, which which is an affection toward his holy law. And he wants to walk in those paths of righteousness. I'm much more cautious to the libertine than I am the careful man. Amen? Human logic, again, would say, if God is doing it, why do I need to do anything? But friends, that's human logic. Biblical logic doesn't position ever the sovereignty of God against the responsibilities that we have as his people. Don't ever forget that. Instead, it emphasizes both equally in complete harmony. Therefore, we safely and biblically can conclude that since God is at work within us, if God is keeping us, then it is absolutely correct for Jude here to say that I ought to also exhibit some responsibility in keeping myself because God's given me some equipment to do so. We are, as Dr. Peter Masters, this this, uh, kind of threw me for a loop when he used to talk this way, but beloved, remember, we've already talked about being called. We've already talked about being sanctified. Now we can talk about cooperating with God, right? We don't talk about cooperating with God until he's given us his spirit in order to be able to cooperate with him. We are to cooperate with what God through his spirit is doing in our lives. You and I are to cooperate with the Lord. We're not to be always fighting against him. Well, I know God's word says that, but I'm not doing that. Yikes. You're demonstrating, you know, you don't have a very cooperative spirit. You may not have the spirit at all if you're acting like that. Cooperate, of course, entails specifically giving up ourselves wholly and truly to the work and those things that he calls us to do, giving ourselves up unto them. Oh, the Bible, as uh, Pastor Christian was talking about yesterday, it is the instructions that God gives us. It is sufficient to help us in all areas of our faith and our practice. And when we don't cooperate with it, when we don't want to let it be the authority, and by His grace, by His uh, enabled ability that He has given us a transformed mind to recognize this truth, walk, stop, put, cut out the Time magazine, when we don't do those things, don't expect any changes if you're fighting against God. We can't constantly be fighting and not cooperating with the spirit in the word and expect any different results. Oh, but I just can't do it. No, you can't. By yourself, you can't. You have to come to the cross again and again. You have to come against other brothers and sisters and say, do it together. You have to get with your spouse. You have to walk these miles along other Christians, but you can't give up. And you have to be ready to be held accountable, right? We have to, brothers and sisters. Persevere, kept, in one dictionary is described to continue doing something in spite of difficulty in in opposition. Don't give up. Keep going in the faith. And we don't have enough time really to do justice to the last set of text that I want us to look at, but even despite our own shortcomings, let us briefly look at verses 24 and 25 that exhibits for us that God is able and he is willing to keep us as his people despite ourselves. The theme of these closing verses here in 24 and 25 that says, he is able that or him that is able referring to God, of course, to keep you from falling And present you faultless before the presence of His glory. Goes on to say wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power. These closing verses they reiterate now to us the existing and the joyful news. That our wise God our wise Savior full of glory majesty dominion and power. It is Him that is able to keep us. The doctor can't keep you. The psychologist can't keep you. Pharmaceutical drugs cannot keep you. Family members, others cannot keep you, but God can keep you, and He will keep you. We see there that He'll keep you from falling. We're taught here that ultimately, yes, we may, we may still be tempted by Satan to sin, and yet we, and, and also that we will sin. But we see here in this text, He will keep you from falling. It means this when you compare it with all of the Scriptures, He will keep you from falling and sinking under the temptation of Satan and being ultimately, underscore the word, ultimately devoured and destroyed by Him. You may come under His persuasion at times, out of your own foolishness, your own temptation. We're not going to be kept from every act of sin. That's not what's being promised here. But he will keep you from the final and ultimate reign and dominion of sin that would cause you to be destroyed. The ultimate reign and dominion of sin. He will keep his elect from all damnable heresies and apostasies. He may get wrapped up. I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but. I don't, think I've ever, I don't think I've ever been in a, a situation where I believed in a, an, a, an actual heresy that was so contrary to Scripture that would damn my soul. But it is a reality that the called and the sanctified can at times spend a season under a false teaching that's a damnable heresy. But God will bring them out of that. That's what meant here. He will keep you from falling on the ultimate sins. And why? He wants to do that for the presentation of you who he has given to Christ, who is kept in Christ, to present on the final day as faultless for his own glory. Look at the text. This wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power. What a synopsis of the glorious gospel that we see at this point at the end of the message. The one who has been set apart the one who has been beloved of the Father, called by the Spirit and kept in Jesus, will be presented in the end faultless. You who have sinned in Adam, although wretchedly guilty and filthy in your natural state, so prone to wonder, so prone to backsliding, and still yet so guilty even after your conversion, continuing to carry within yourself sin and death until you are laid in the grave. Yet we see here, the Bible says that Jesus Christ in His perfect holiness, in His perfect law keeping, His glorious righteousness will present you before God the Father as faultless. Clothed, you could imagine it, and shining robes of immortality and glory. And notice the attitude that will encompass all of this taking place—exceeding joy. The text says, "With exceeding joy, because we will be shouting praises, knowing what we truly deserved and what we've been delivered from." Won't we? Praise be to Christ. Thank you, O oh God, that your gospel was true. <laughs> Oh, oh, glory be to Christ in the highest. There'd be exceeding joy. There on that day, all the under shepherds, all the gospel ministers, they're going to retire, you could say, their sickles and their harvest materials. They will find exceeding joy and rest and knowing that they led people in the right direction to the very end of the gospel that they hoped in for eternal life well just one concluding thought prior to stepping away from today's scripture let us pause beloved and be thoughtful regarding the mighty hand of God in his providential care for us let us have rest in that let us have and enjoy a peace and a security in that these truths will mean so much to us as we grow and we move forward in our Christian life especially in times of apathy apathy when you feel as though he's not going to keep you. Because as we mentioned today, the need to persevere is a reality on this side of glory. We have to keep ourselves. The Christian life is one of joy. It's one of unspeakable happiness and contentment. But it's also one, as we're seeing today, it have been alluded to of a, cons- of a consistent battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil all of whom want to work together to take away from us many of the truths that we've considered today. No matter what the decrees of God have in store for us in the future, may we always recall that He will keep us to the very, very end. Let's say a word of prayer. Holy Father, we come before You, O God. And we truly are humbled and thank Thee for what You have done in our lives. Lord, as we mentioned earlier, no matter our age, no matter our position in a family context, or in society, all of us have shared in essence the same calling by which You have shown us our great need for the Savior. You have rescued us, and as You did, Your ancient people that we're in error and in rebellion in so many ways through the prophet of Isaiah. You sent and you called us. Oh, we thank you. We're so humbled by your blessed call. Keep us, we pray, from delightful ignorance. Keep us, we ask you, O God, from the air of comfortable slothfulness. Keep us, we pray, Preserve us until the very end by your tender love and reminder each Sabbath day at the supper of what Jesus has done upon his cross. God, many of us here are weak. Many of us, O oh God, have walked into this place this day with scars upon our backs from the effects, O oh God, and the consequences of sin. And we need you, O oh Lord, To take the things that Jude, your inspired author, has presented to us today and make real to our hearts. I pray for the one, O God, who may be on that precipice. That dark, unjoyful, dark precipice of doubt. Bring them back, Lord. Show them what they have in Christ. Give them the blueprint of victory in your word. And, O God, encourage them to move forward in their high calling as one of your sons and daughters. Help us, O Lord, to recapture many of these things, for they are necessary to contend for the truth of your church, not only now, but for future generations. We bless you and we thank you, O God. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.